0: Welcome and hello and good whatever It's This Is Going Well I Think with David Cooper And I'm your host, David Cooper It's This Is Going Well I Think The show where no one's listening and no one cares The show where every episode's the last episode And today, poop, butts, and poop And a funeral? Another one? (laughs) Hear ye, hear ye, that's right, a funeral for me talking about my anal fissures. I know I've done it on about a hundred of these episodes, which makes no sense because there's less than a hundred of them, but that's what we'll be doing. And we'll be joined by Dr. Benjamin Schmidt, or more affectionately, Doc Schmidt, a gastroenterologist out of St. Louis, Missouri, who makes some awesome videos about, well, being a butt doctor online. We'll talk about those a little bit more in the interview, but we're here to talk about and put to rest my anal fissures and learn about him and talk about other gastroenterologist kind of things. So after today, I won't mention my anal fissures again. So let's dive into this thing. poop doctor in st louis missouri exactly and that's why you went to medical school for all those years and studied so hard so some idiot could call you a poop doctor right
1: exactly i've I've finally made it you're the first one
0: (laughs) are there misconceptions about your work is it mostly treating like i don't know bowel disorders stomach disorders anything like that
1: Yeah. I mean, I think the most common misconception is that I'm literally just like dealing with poop every day because people always say, how can you do that? How can you deal with poop day in and day out? But really we don't. I mean, I listen to people describe their poop day in and day out, but when I'm doing colonoscopies and that kind of thing, there's not much, not much poop. If they prepared for the colonoscopy correctly, there's, there's not much involved. Um, But yeah, it's a pretty diverse specialty. There's, we, we deal with a lot of bowel issues, irritable bowel syndrome, but then inflammatory bowel disease But it's a really diverse specialty, which is what attracted me to it. You have stomach disorders, you have esophageal swallowing disorders, but then you also have pancreas disorders as well as liver disorders.
0: Do you deal with any urine kind of stuff or that's we leave that to the other specialists, the urologists, I believe?
1: Yeah, exactly. Urologists would be the ones um, who's carving up these specialties,
0: right? Like, like an ENT doctor. Why? Like, why do they get the ears, nose, and throat? uh, But maybe you know, maybe not this one thing that's adjacent. Who's carving out these specialties, especially when you deal with one or more maybe unrelated things that could be carved up into further specialties?
1: It is a fair question because early on, you know, the first doctors kind of everyone dealt with everything. So now it's just slowly been things that impact other things very closely will kind of be grouped together. So like the liver plays a big role in digestion, for example, as does the pancreas. So that's why even though to someone who you know doesn't study the human body, they seem kind of like random things, they are sort of related. Similarly, ENT, you know, the ear and the nose and the throat, they all kind of work their way towards the same tube, so to speak. So that's some of it, but it is seemingly Random at times, for sure.
0: Well, I guess back in the day, there were surgeon barbers. You know, you need a haircut or you need an amputation. I'm your guy.
1: Exactly. One-stop shop.
0: And they've slightly carved that out into different professions. Uh, IBS, which I guess is the thing I suffer from, but it's not irritable bowel syndrome with me. It's irate bowel syndrome. Like, my bowels are angry. We thought it was celiac. I got tested for that. We think now it's Crohn's and I got to do a stool sample, which I'm waiting to go to the doctor. Is it hereditary IBS? Because I'm thinking maybe I got it from my mom. I think my mom's an undiagnosed case. And don't you love it when people make armchair diagnoses of other people who aren't doctors?
1: Exactly. That's the armchair diagnosis, especially in GI, is is kind of a a hallmark, I would say. But yeah, I mean, there is some level of of being, being a hereditary diagnosis. It's not something like where there's a specific gene and you have, you know, I can tell you you have 25% chance or 50% chance of getting it, but there's definitely signs showing that it runs in families especially since they're tied with um anxiety and depression as well and those are conditions that can run with families within families too
0: you've just described my judaism to me in a a perfect accuracy (laughs) no when we were kids we would go for chinese food and then my mom would want to go across the street for what she called a nutty cone a drumstick Uh, i'm i have lactose intolerance i imagine she does too and on the car ride home, she would be screaming at my dad. Four kids in the back seat of a minivan. Speed up! Speed up! Hurry up! You know, don't wait at that light because she needed to get home to the bathroom. Uh, meanwhile, farting the whole time. And I just thought that was totally normal. And then I realized I behaved the same way. And now that I live in the world and have coworkers and a girlfriend and friends, I come to realize this is totally abnormal. I probably have IBS. Uh, and I've I've talked <laughs> to my just general practitioner about it, and they're they've given me the the go ahead on that. But uh, stool samples, what's next for me? Anyway, uh, I don't know why I share all this to you. I guess my question is how many times a day should I be going to the bathroom?
1: Mm, that's that's the age old question. the The good news for you is that there's not a singular answer that you need to hit a specific number because everyone can be a little bit different. So the kind of classic medical school teaching is that it can be anywhere from three times a day to three times a week can be considered normal.
0: Three times a week, I wouldn't be able to sleep. I would be so... Anxious, like I'm so glad I'm IBSD for those normies, IBS diarrhea. If I was IBSC constipated, I get really stressed out. I I don't know. Going a lot is way less stressful than going not enough. Don't you
1: think? Agreed. Yeah, I think I think that personally. But then also I see that in patients as well. I mean, you'd be amazed at some of the stories that I hear in terms of people, you know, not having a bowel movement for two weeks in some cases, just absurd amounts of time where they're suffering with this. So I, I. kind of completely relate to to your opinion on that.
0: All right. Well, let's stop talking about me. Let's talk a little bit about you. How do you get interested in this? Was this something that even before you went to medical school, this is where I want to end up? Or is it something as you're studying first, second year, and you're sort of realizing where you might like to specialize, it it, it becomes of interest to you?
1: Yeah, honestly, it was it was along the way that I became interested. Before I started medical school, I was Interested in the other end, kind of. I always wanted to be a neurologist or a brain doctor, but I started medical school, and that's when you kind of first learn all the material. But then you rotate and meet doctors in each of the different specialties, and I really liked the uh, material of GI. I thought it was very interesting—the pathology, the physiology, how digestion works, those sorts of things. But then. When I actually met doctors that did this job, there was one particular one in medical school that was just so passionate and so excited about his job. And, and I wanted to work with him and I wanted to be like him. And then that what is what led to me working in his clinic and learning about all the cool procedures that GI doctors can do. And that's what really kind of set me on this path.
0: So you're fascinated by the cool procedures. You're fascinated by how digestion works. I'm fascinated by how digestion works too. And it's because I heard a doctor on TV One little thing, say one little offhand comment, and I found it fascinating. They were talking about gut flora and gut health. And they likened the gut flora to a forgotten organ. That your gut flora is as important as any other major organ in your body. People don't know what that is. That's just the bacteria in your gut and your gastrointestinal tract that helps you digest. Is that true? Is what I heard true that the bacteria is as complicated and has a most a rich evolutionary history, just like your other organs, uh, and that it's super important for your health. If you have unhealthy gut flora, you're not you can be unhealthy. Is is that
1: true? Absolutely. That's, it's a really quickly growing field that we don't completely, completely understand, but your gut flora can dictate so much about your everyday health, not even just your gut health. I, I heard a crazy stat um, over the course of my training that the DNA Of the bacteria in your gut, which you have trillions, literally trillions of bacteria in your gut. If you added up all of the DNA that those bacteria have inside them, you know, these singular celled organisms, and you weighed that DNA, it would weigh more than your own DNA. That's how many bacteria there are, that they're just controlling so much about things. And we are kind of often messing up those bacteria based on the foods that we eat, the environment that we expose ourselves to, the antibiotics that we take unnecessarily and all of these can directly certainly cause GI problems like diarrhea, like IBS, like um, even constipation. But we're finding that there might even be connections to other issues like depression, anxiety, even other autoimmune conditions that aren't related to the gut, like thyroid disease, for example. It's it's, it's really wild.
0: Wow. The, it, now, have these individual bacteria, at least some of them, kind of evolved to be very specific to us, to mammals that are similar to us, like... Uh, our distant cousins like chimpanzees or are they just generic? They can affect any digestion system of any animal, lizard, shark, whatever. So, and if that is true that, that this DNA, uh, these bacteria are very specific to us, they've kind of evolved with us and they carry all this genetic complexity and they've evolved with us, kind of really flips the assumption that all of our genetic code and everything about us that we need to be healthy is just in our DNA, right?
1: It is definitely true that our environment kind of molds a lot about what makes us us because it is true that these bacteria, they're specific. A better way to think about it is more the percentages of different types of bacteria. So there might be, there's kind of three or four big categories of bacteria that are in anyone's gut, for example, but the percentage and the makeup of, you know, which percentage or or how many are firmicutes versus bacteroides, for example, that percentage is kind of what defines maybe a human as opposed to a chimpanzee, for example. And, and when that balance gets out of whack uh, from the normal balance that the, a person is supposed to have or whatever your normal is, that's when problems can arise. And when other bacteria that are, you know, so-called bad bacteria, like you might've heard of a infection called C. diff, uh, which is an infection that can kind of flourish when this balance gets out of whack, this specific balance that's normal for you. Uh, so, it, it can certainly cause a lot of problems if we don't have our own matched thing that's that's formulated by our environment
0: so a calorie is not a calorie is not a calorie because a calorie of kind of healthy food that promotes healthy gut bacteria versus a calorie of empty junk chocolate bar lots of preservatives um bad food can even though it's the same amount of calories and we think okay that's how we lose or gain weight or that's how we have or don't have energy may not be the same. Is is that something that can be inferred from what you're saying, or or am I wrong? A calorie is, in fact, a calorie.
1: No, I, I think you're absolutely right. There's, there's a lot more nuance to nutrition than we realized because – and that's part of the reason so many people have so much difficulty with losing weight or maintaining a healthy lifestyle, and it shows in a lot of different kind of simple ways. I've heard of a lot of my patients, for example, who have IBS and have really debilitating symptoms – um having issues here. Obviously I'm seeing them here in the US. That's where I've done all of my training. But for example, they go to Europe for two weeks and while they're in Europe eating European food for two weeks, their IBS symptoms completely resolve. And that's because of the different foods there.
0: Oh, resolve. I was thinking you were about to say the opposite because I get traveler's diarrhea like crazy and I think it's just because like the vegetables the produce the meats the the bacteria that's hanging around kitchens and I, I mean I this is my crackpot theory not based in any kind of science is different depending on where you are and it just throws me out of whack when I get there plus probably the airplane food seeded me you know the crappy yeah, yeah. preservative kept warm for a long time you know plastic airplane food if you will has probably seeded my trip to be bad so maybe my crackpot theory And so right after all. But is that true? Like local foods, local produce in widely different geographic regions can affect your digestion and give you an upset stomach. Is that a reason for traveler's diarrhea?
1: Absolutely. I I think like you have already hinted at, there's a lot of nuance to this, which makes it hard to give a good rule of thumb for any one person, which is why GI is such a complicated field and a difficult one to, to help people with, because yeah, there's a million reasons you can get traveler's diarrhea. Just the stress of traveling, even if you don't have IBS, being stressed and having anxiety are gonna have an impact on your gut with how many nerves are in your gut and and how kind of important your your mindset is to your, your gut health. So even just that alone is gonna increase your risk of either having diarrhea or having constipation. The food you eat on the plane absolutely is gonna have an impact. But when you're kind of in your destination, people react differently to different foods. So just because these kind of isolated stories from my patients saying that they felt better eating the non-processed foods doesn't mean that you or the next patient with IBS is going to have that same experience because different people with IBS have different triggers in terms of whether that's different foods, specific types of foods, or even just certain situations. It's um, It's such a broad phenotype, this disease.
0: All right. Now I want to bring you on a journey. Uh, I have been talking about my anal fissure for several weeks on this podcast to the point where listeners are complaining. I want to finally, you know, have a funeral for this uh, by talking about it with someone who knows what they're talking about. So I've had blood in my stool a little over time. And I I don't know, my girlfriend's nagging me to go to the doctor because that can either be something insane. Like, I don't know, an insane thing in your stomach that could kill you like cancer, or it's just hemorrhoids acting up, or it's just, you know, who knows? So I go and I get the diagnosis, and in some sense I was kind of like uh, relieved because it's coming just from the exterior, the very end. I'm not, you know, I don't have an ulcer deep in my stomach causing blood and all this kind of stuff. But then I'm like, what is this? Is it going to go away? How is it going to go away? It's painful. What does it mean? How do you get them? I have a lot of questions. How common are anal fissures... Uh, for people across all age ranges
1: Enal you know, fissures are i don't have an exact number of how common they are but there's something that as a gi doctor I'm, I'm seeing definitely on a weekly basis because they can be associated with so many other problems you can get them just from having constipation or just from having diarrhea and you can get them in more serious cases with having crohn's disease as well but the it's, it's a common problem that we see very frequently in the gi field
0: so what are they? They're, it's basically, if you think of your butthole or your sphincter, and we can be vulgar, mm-hmm. thank God, we're not uh, subject mm-hmm. to any FCC or CRTC standards here. As a sphincter, you know, it's like a, it's like a hole that closes and opens. A crack around the rim, I, I hate the word fissure because when I think of an earthquake and the earth <laughs> splitting and like a giant crack in the earth with lava pouring out, like that's what they call a fissure in the geological sense, uh, is my description of it accurate?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. It's like a small tear in the in the anus and the uh, sphincter, which is why it's so painful um, and why it can cause some, some bleeding as well.
0: And do they go away naturally? Because I heard sometimes they do and then sometimes they don't.
1: Yeah. Naturally. Unfortunately, uh, that's the most common way and the easiest way for them to go away. But easier or easy isn't really the right word probably because it's kind of a long process and most of the treatments we have aren't treatments in the classic sense. It's more kind of symptom control and trying to facilitate the body to heal it itself.
0: And is getting Botox in your butt one way? This is what somebody told me and I'm like, I'm going to have to get Botox, but I'm 37. I hang around people around my age, older, younger. They're starting to get Botox. Now I got to be, you know, when a bunch of my friends are talking about how they're getting their lips done, I got to be like, oh, I just got my butthole done. But is that one way that they help it heal?
1: that is one possible option. It's it's not one that I've used over the course of my GI training or that I've had a patient have to do. It's not a procedure that I do personally, but it is kind of on the list of options. But the vast majority of the time, conservative management, uh, which is like using pain control and and making sure that you're having regular bowel movements that aren't too loose and aren't too hard. Those are kind of what we rely on primarily.
0: Oh, I know the Bristol stool chart. Do you want to tell us what the Bristol stool chart is? It's one of my favorite, you know, infographics you can find on the internet.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. It's a a chart that we use in the GI world to help patients describe their bowel movements, especially since people love to describe their bowel movements and they always use very strange and interesting and unique kind of analogies like foods, for example, to uh, to do it. This is sort of a more standardized way uh, where we can have numbers that correspond one through six. Um, and there's actually pictures of bowel movements on this chart um, that correspond with each number. And basically, it ranges all the way from straight liquid, um, at the bottom end to going up to kind of a rock hard stool with like cracks in it from being dried. Um, and it's a way for patients to be able to very easily look, I can hold up the chart and they can say, yeah, it's like a three, my stool is like a four, It's like a five and I can use that. And we can even use that uh, chronologically because if they come back in, they can say if they've had improvement as opposed to other patients who try to say, oh, it's like pudding or it's the consistency of a smoothie and these things are a little (laughs) bit less objective.
0: Uh, And might make enjoying smoothies for you that day a little less enjoyable. Exactly. So what should I be doing? Uh, My doctor sent me for a stool sample because apparently I got a blood test, which I think can test you for celiac. Please correct me if I'm wrong.
1: Yep, that's right.
0: But for Crohn's, they wanted a stool sample. I believe is that is that right? Is that how you get that? Or or she she's on the path to diagnosing me, and the next step is stool sample.
1: Yeah, Crohn's disease. One of the ways that you can move, like you said, move towards the diagnosis is with a stool test that tests for inflammation in the stool. I I, I can only assume that's the test that they're referring to. It's called fecal calprotectin, and what that is is it's sort of a it's a more specific marker. We have blood tests as well that test for inflammation, but the problem is they're not specific. So let's say you have another inflammatory condition, like you have thyroiditis, for example, or, or you have a condition maybe that hasn't even been diagnosed that's, you know, you have arthritis or something it, that could be flaring up and that could make your blood marker for inflammation high. But if you have inflammation in your stool, that really can only be from an intestinal inflammation. Huh. So that tells us, that gives a little bit more specific information um, and that can um, help with the diagnosis. Usually you wouldn't definitively diagnose with uh, someone with Crohn's disease based on that stool test, but if it's abnormal, the probably the next step would be for you to get a colonoscopy.
0: <sighs> I haven't done, what, I got my first rectal exam recently. and mm. But yeah, I just, I, I went on my side in the fetal position and it was a little painful because of aforementioned fissure. And yeah, but I guess I say all that to, how old is your first
1: colonoscopy supposed to be?
0: Like, should I have already gotten it by now? Am I overdue? Am I underdue? What, what's the general advice there?
1: No, I mean, for a, a screening colonoscopy to screen for colon cancer, it was recently changed, but still now it's at 45. So you're not due from that perspective. But then based on symptoms, sometimes we recommend having them earlier. The 45 recommendation is if you have no GI problems at all, and you're just kind of going about your life, it's always recommended that at age 45 now you have one. But if you're having blood in the stool, you're having abdominal pain that can't be explained, you're losing weight that can't be explained, any of these kind of uh, GI-related symptoms, then we do them sooner. Like It seems like could be the case in your case, obviously. It's too soon to say. I explain it as irate bowel syndrome.
0: All right, that's one thing that we got to put the funeral on. I'm not going to talk about my Fisher again. Uh, I'm definitely going to talk about it again, but not for the next week or two. This one's an interesting one. It's something that I don't think a lot of people talk about because the people who suffer from it, by definition, are very private. I call them anxious poopers. I used to be one. I'm not anymore because of an experience that I won't describe to you, but I can go anywhere now. I can go on an airplane, but I used to have to hold it until I was... Home And my girlfriend is an anxious pooper. When she goes away for a weekend with friends, she gets stressed. She can't go. She'll hold it in for three days if she has to. If she's in what I'll describe as an adversarial pooping environment, you know, where people might hear her go to the bathroom or even know that she's in the bathroom. Uh, She's my girlfriend. So she's open about talking about this stuff. But talking about it doesn't seem to help. Uh, And I'm telling her she's got to do something about this because in later life, it's going to be a problem. But I don't know if I'm right is holding on to it because you're stressed and you physically can't go because you're so worried about going for whatever reason all the time or holding it till you get home over a weekend, is doing that healthy? Is it neutral? Is it extremely unhealthy? Are there risks associated with that? And it's very hard to treat that because there's a psychological component to it. I mean, that's the only component as far as I understand. Have you, first of all, okay, let's let's walk this back. Have you heard of, of this, this sort of anxious pooper thing?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's a common phenomenon, I would say.
0: Uh, see, I knew it was common. Uh, do people go to like you for help or do they go to a psychiatrist for help or psychologist?
1: Well, it, it, it's interesting that you bring that up because I, I obviously have a lot of experience with this in a general sense, but there, it's not very common that that's the main reason someone is coming to see me as a GI doctor. Usually any anxiety related to you know having bowel movements in, in that capacity is more related to another diagnosis that they have if they're seeing me like when i say that i mean like they have ibs or they have crohn's disease and it already makes them have a lot of problems with going to the bathroom so i i see fewer people who are have that as their major issue with regards to your initial question of if it's problematic I think that it's it's only problematic insofar as the symptoms that it causes you while you're kind of on that trip or recovering from that trip in the sense that it's, you know, naturally, it's uncomfortable to intentionally constipate yourself. It's going to cause bloating. It's going to, you know, decrease your appetite. It's going to make you not enjoy yourself as much, but kind of intentionally avoiding having a bowel movement for a couple of days is not going to cause any significant problems. If you continue that though, and if you continue to hold for you know a week or so, there is a theoretical risk that it could cause significant distension and stretching of your of your bowels. In extreme cases, probably in very unusual cases, you could have a perforation or a tear of your intestines, but that would only be in extreme cases meaning extremely long time that you're holding it. And probably combined with some other aspect of your health that's that's contributing to it. So I, I think for the most part it's health neutral, but it's it's more about working kind of like you alluded to with more of like a therapist to help recognize kind of what the anxiety is that you have with this, why you have a problem, and, and strategies to to overcome it. That, that's not unusual for me as as a GI doctor. We're commonly referring people to either psychiatrists or um, just kind of a talk therapist to help with these issues because even IBS, a lot of that can be improved with with talk therapy.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm like intentionally way open with my friends to the point where they might may or may not hate it. Uh, spoiler, I don't have any friends. But I think for a lot of people, they have a lot of shame. They don't want to talk about it. But they need to like have a, a decent bathroom situation after a meal. And if they don't, that's going to be a problem. So they can't go on a picnic. And if they do go on a picnic, it might cause a problem. You know, and these things, it comes up in everyday life. But I guess what I'm hearing is intentional constipation. I'll concede that it's occasional intentional constipation is is health neutral in, in in most cases in rare cases it can be bad for you. So me telling my girlfriend she needs to do about something about this I'm I'm probably in the wrong there.
1: I think it's it's up to her cuz it, yeah it's it's sort of if the symptoms that it causes her are are fine with her then then I think it's probably okay but if it gets to the point where she's like man I always just have so much pain or I always have so much discomfort when I'm on these trips then maybe that can be an impetus to to work for, through
0: it okay those are the two things i wanted to put to rest let's talk about you a bit there's the seinfeld episode where kramer claims when you're at a party you need to get near a gastroenterologist because they have the best anecdotes they're the most colorful people that you're going to want to stand near them at a party uh because they're a hit are you a hit of parties do you find that do you find you got the stories you got the you can kind of sling out stories at any moment and make people engaged interested and laugh
1: i i think so i think the the trick is always to gauge the audience quickly in terms of how intense of a uh, level of gross out humor I need to go to kind of with with the anecdote, because because you can imagine we kind of see all all sorts of things. So I can I can clear a room very quickly as well with with uh, the grosser stories. So it's more about <laughs> picking the right one to tell.
0: Is it true that every time somebody comes to the doctor with something stuck up there, they claim that it's a million-to-one odds that it happened, even though it's actually kind of common, people using foreign objects for stimulation, no judgment with people's fetishes. My only advice there is if you're going to use something, make sure it has a big base so you can get it out kind of thing. Uh, is it true that people claim it was some sort of accident all the time, an Un- unusually large amount of times that it wouldn't add up with the amount of times that people like putting stuff up there for fun?
1: The short answer is yes, I would say so that. Yeah, that's that, it's a lot of denial and a lot of confusion. L- luckily, I have not had to deal with many of those situations, not not because I don't want to, but often, unfortunately for the patient, it's it's more of a surgeon that has to deal with a, a GI surgeon that has to deal with those sorts of issues, because there's only so much that we can do. Um, for example, I didn't even realize this when I first started my training, but I got a call when I was a first year fellow, which is like the first year of training uh, for a GI doctor. And I got a call from an outside hospital that someone had a, a vibrator in their rectum that was stuck and they couldn't get it out. And they were being transferred to, to our hospital. Um, but, and it was still on, was the pro, was part of the problem, the vibrator. Oh my God, yeah. But the issue is that like, so the only thing that we could do as GI doctors is go on with a, a colonoscope, which is the, the tool we use to do a colonoscopy. But the problem that my my supervising doctor explained to me and the reason that it had to be surgery to deal with it is if we... Do our colonoscopy and we grab it in and pull it into the little camera. The, the vibration from the vibrator would actually like break the camera, and, and that's a very common issue. So it's often surgeons that end up dealing with those patients. But I can tell you that it's usually a lot of a lot of healthy denial involved in the explanation for the source.
0: I mean, I'm me, so I'm not a normal human being, but I wouldn't be embarrassed. You know, not I, I'm not into butt stuff because of my IBS and now Fisher. But if I was, it's like. I don't know, but get toys that you can remove safely, I guess, is my only advice. You know, like it doesn't matter if you want to play with your butt. Who cares? I mean, that's one of the reasons it's there,
1: right? That's true. I'll second that.
0: (laughs) Uh, All right. So what would be the story that would clear out the room?
1: One of my strangest stories, maybe this isn't clearing out the room. I can ease, ease to that one is in terms of finding things up people's butts. This is one of my most popular videos online as well. I was doing a colonoscopy, and this is an unusual thing to find up someone's butt—an unusual location. In that, it wasn't in their rectum. I was going through, and, and the end of a, at the end of your colon, which is really the beginning. But when you're going through the colonoscopy, when you're finished, it's in a part of the colon called the cecum, which is you know five feet from your anus uh, through the intestines. That is, and I got through there, and I was looking around, making sure the person didn't have any polyps or any inflammation, and then I saw that they had this shiny thing in their cecum, and it was a dime oh. um, that was in there. And I, you know, I I removed it, we have this net like thing that we can use to pull it out. And then I, um, the patient woke up after I finished the procedure. And I asked him if he ever remembered swallowing a dime, because it's there's no way you could have put it up the other end, because there's no way you could get it up that far. Um, so I asked him if he could swallow, and he had no recollection of ever swallowing a dime. So that was probably my strangest story. But kind of the gross ones are just what I alluded to at the beginning.
0: Wait, wait, wait. I have an important question about that. Who gets the dime? I mean, that is currency. That is hard cash. Who gets the dime after the procedure? Does it get filed away in some medical evidence cabinet like you would imagine a police... uh police documents or something. Do you get to keep the dime as a nice bonus? Do you give it back to the patient? Do you throw it out? What happens to the dime? I have to know.
1: That is that is a fair question. I can't believe, honestly, that I, I skipped over that. But yeah, the, the, the patient does get the dime, <laughs> or at least in this case, we, we gave the guy the dime and a little like specimen cup just for him to keep. All right,
0: that's my that's my profound, important, deep question. My years of experience as an interviewer taught me to ask, what, <laughs> what was the anecdote you were sharing uh, when I interrupted you?
1: this is more of a a general anecdote. So so the grossest part of being a GI doctor is when people do not, because I alluded to, we don't actually deal with poop that often. But the problem is sometimes people who have a lot of issues with constipation, when they do their standard colonoscopy prep, the prep isn't enough to clear them out all the way. Um, And kind of the grossest thing that remains is all these, you know, for lack of a better term, poop particles, I guess. But often you can see and identify even foods that people had eaten that are still kind of in the colon as you're moving through and, and coming through. And the, the most famous one, the most common one is corn probably. Um, but there was a, and I, I don't know, I still don't know how this is possible or how this happened, but we were doing a colonoscopy and there was a, a grape, like a fully identifiable grape that was in this person's colon, just hanging out, which kind of sounds funny and telling it, but it was like literally surrounded by poop and covered in poop. And then just, I'm having to pull all of this stuff out and it literally clogs up the scope and it's just, it's a mess. So those are the days that I briefly regret um, being a GI doctor, but then they're fortunately few and far between because the colonoscopy prep, if you get one done, you'll find it's, it's quite effective. Who gets to keep the grape? The, the grape goes swiftly into the trash. No, I, I don't think the patient even got informed <laughs> of the presence of the grape. Well,
0: isn't there those coffee beans? It's like it's like lemur poop coffee. I think it's called Kopi Lawak. Have you heard of this? I have not. Supposed- oh, I ca- you're going to love this. So there's these little lemury things. I don't know where they are in Indonesia or something somewhere near Australia in one of the islands, but they're not lemurs. They're called Kopi Lawak. They're a local, you know, lemur looking beast. And they feast on coffee cherries. But they love them, and they only pick the ripest of the ripe. And who knows why they love them, because they can't digest them. They poop them out whole. And so the locals, it's, this is insane to me. They'll, and what I'm telling you is 100% true. I mean, maybe my facts are a little wacky or I'm over-exaggerating, but you can look it up, um, and just you got to accept it as truth right now. The locals, the farmers, I guess, they search for the wild droppings of these Kopi Lewak lemur things. They pick out the cherries. They get the bean or whatever outside it from the cherry. And then they sell it for hundreds of dollars a pound. Oh. It's supposed to be the best coffee. And only you gotta am- first of all, I don't know how you guarantee that it's real poop coffee. I mean it might you could just put a regular beans in there and just send it to some idiots in North America <laughs> who have way too much money. But assuming it is all true, It's it's insane. And so that's what with the with the grape, I'm like, maybe the finest grapes. But uh, as a doctor, what is your opinion on this coffee? And would you ever drink it?
1: Oh, my. Yeah, I I I certainly I'm actually not a big coffee guy in the first place, just to put that out there. But even if I was, I would not ever drink coffee that had come out of the butt of a lemur or a lemur-like creature. (laughs)
0: I've, I've, uh, I've, I've discussed this with a, with a biologist and he's like, they're not lemurs. I'm like, who cares? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they look like lemurs. I call my right. cat a bat. It's got bad ears, but um, that's crazy to me. So tell me a little bit about the video. So you, you're a, you're an online creator. You have a TikTok. You're on a few other platforms, but your TikTok's quite popular. Where do you get the idea to start talking about the, the daily musings, the daily experiences of a GI doctor and, and share it online?
1: Sure. No, I mean it was honestly like like many things on social media it was born out of the pandemic a little bit in that I uh didn't have anything to do. I as a trainee, we obviously were working a lot during the the pandemic, but I had a week off that I had scheduled, but there you know, I couldn't travel anywhere, I couldn't go anywhere, and I have a history of making kind of, you know, short fun YouTube videos with my friends when I was in high school and college, you know, like most people do. So I thought it might be an interesting experiment to try to combine that skit silly video format with my interest in GI and my career of, of GI and see if people respond to it. So I started making a bunch of videos in that week off because I had nothing else to do. I probably made, I don't know, 20, 30 videos in that week. And I by the end of the week, there were a few of them that started getting some some traction. And then I just kind of took off from there. I kind of saw what people liked, what they were interested in. Some of that was like the gross out stories with GI, but some of it was you know, teaching about GI, talking about what life is like as a medical student or a resident and, and going from there.
0: Well, teach me a little about GI. What what are some things that people want to know that most people don't that would be helpful for the average person to know?
1: Sure. I mean, I think we, we alluded to one of them already that people are always very concerned about bowel movement frequency and that you don't need to have a certain type of bowel movement to um, a certain type of frequency to be healthy. I think there's such a huge spectrum within GI and what's what's normal is, is not going to be the same for any one, uh, for, for any group of people. It's going to be different for everybody. But then I think a, a big thing, there's a lot of misinformation about GI out there about whether, um, you know, how to control your, your GI issues, if you should be eating this or, or not eating that. And again, it all comes down to what is going to be right for you. And some of that is trial and error. But a big thing that I've talked a lot about is is IBS and what that means. There's unfortunately a lot of people who are, you know, see GI doctors that aren't very good or, or aren't very well trained, or they're just not able to access GI doctors and just see other uh, general practitioners who don't have as much experience. But people who have chronic abdominal pain, chronic GI issues, but normal tests and are just told that there's nothing that can be done to help them. And just educating people about um, what IBS is and how there are actually ways to treat it, and that could include anything from Uh, medicines to changing of your diet to even gut hypnotherapy where you learn how to kind of train your gut. So I talk a lot about that.
0: Whoa, 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 whoa. Gut hypnotherapy. Yes, it's true. What is it?
1: It's, it's kind of, it's therapy, honestly, in and of itself, which is um, where it gets its name, obviously. But what it is, is sort of a, there's a few different ways. I don't do it myself, but we can actually use um, hypnosis to put people in kind of a a more suggestible state and get people to work on associating kind of uncomfortable, um, GI sensations with more pleasant, um, thoughts, if that makes sense. So a lot of people feeling pain with IBS is more of how you're interpreting normal things moving through your gut. If that's a little bit of gas that's going through people with IBS, for some reason, their nerves are hyperactive. And that little bit of um, discomfort is interpreted as a much more uncomfortable uh, kind of stimulus. So what we can do is we can kind of train people to not associate these Discomforts that they're feeling in their abdomen, for example, with a big pain response, and to just recognize that this is normal. Similar to how you might associate when someone has like a regular phobia of like flying or something, that it's sure it's scary, it's loud, there's you're really high up in the air, but if you focus on your breathing and you focus on your thoughts and you recognize that this is all just normal, that it's it can pass and that you can you can survive it.
0: Interesting. And there's sort of peer review that this. Hypnotherapy it actually helps people manage the pain?
1: Oh, absolutely. There's a, there are a lot of techniques that you can use <clears throat> that are separate from medicines, just simple breathing activities. There's even like um, massage, like colonic massage, for lack of a, a better term, where you c- can actually just sort of massage your gut in a way. That, that's more for like constipation type symptoms for IBS. But there's a lot of very interesting studies that are being done in non medication um, treatment options for IBS.
0: Okay. Well, I'm fascinated by your journey. I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but I do have one more question. The Squatty Potty. I don't know why this one company has this ubiquitous name for something that's just a little bench, uh, but it's a little thing that, I don't know, slots in the front of your toilet on the ground, and you can put your two legs on it, and it positions yourself to have a more, I don't know if natural's the the right word, but a position while pooping that maybe our ancestors would have taken while squatting and taken one in the woods. Uh, and it's supposed mm-hmm. to align your bowels better and promote healthier poops and, and eliminating more and all this kind of stuff. I think it sounds like nonsense. Is it?
1: It's, it's totally legit. That's a, it's a very common reason, uh, a really common recommendation that we give to patients who have trouble with constipation. Because you're, you're right, Every, everything that you cited is that kind of historically, going way back, when people would have bowel movements, they wouldn't sit down, they would squat. And, and there's actual reason to that. It's not just because they didn't have toilets. It's because when you squat down the way it's more of the muscles that are kind of in your pelvis, the way they pull on the intestines is different in the sitting position versus the squatting position. So if you're squatting your muscle, uh, or if you're sitting rather, your muscles sort of almost pulling on your colon a little tighter on your rectum, a little bit tighter. So it's harder um, for stool to evacuate, but if you're squatting, that muscle relaxes a little bit, and then using and then lets the stool pass easier. So using a squatty potty or even just phone books, we tell people if if anyone still has phone books, um, then you can squat, kind of replicate the squatting position while sitting and have a more easy, uh, more efficient bowel movement.
0: Wow. Uh, well, I think maybe the issue is it opens up your sphincter too much and it irritates my fissure, and that's why I don't like using it. <laughs> it could be. All right, where can folks find you online and stuff? Like if I wanted to start watching your videos, getting some information from you, where's the best place to do it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm on most of the social media platforms, but my two biggest ones are TikTok and YouTube. Um, Doc Schmidt, D-O-C-S-C-H-M-I-D-T are the ones there, but I'm also on Instagram. I'm on Twitter and I'm on Facebook, all with very similar variations of Doc Schmidt. So feel free to search me there. I've got, I try to put out at least two videos a week where some of them are silly skits. Some of them are educational and some of them are just weird things that happen to me like a in-flight medical emergency that I witnessed a a few weeks, a week or so ago. So tons of crazy content, tons of fun stuff.
0: They're really fun videos. I had a great time checking them out before I started talking to you. Dr. Benjamin Schmidt. Thank you for putting me talking about my anal fissures on this show to rest with me. You're definitely a good sports for doing that. And thanks for uh, chatting with me today. I really appreciate you going over this stuff and getting to know you
1: absolutely happy to thanks for having me on it was great
0: all right have a great rest of the day
1: thank you very much